Hey there, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leah, welcome home to your Boo Crew 350. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. All October, it is Trick or Treats with your Boo Crew. We're filling your goodie bag with all new shows in addition to our regular Tuesday release for the entire month. All right, we've been looking forward to this very conversation for months now. On this episode, you are hanging out with filmmakers Vanessa and Joseph Winter. They're amazing. Spoiler alert. At time of release on October 6th, their absolutely brilliant film, Deadstream, premieres on Shudder. We've been talking about this movie nonstop. It is one of the most hilarious and terrifying horror films we've ever seen. And we can't wait for you to experience it. If you haven't managed to catch it yet in one of its festival screenings, This movie follows an internet personality who embarks on an overnight live stream at a haunted house in an attempt to regain followers. Get introduced to the genius of Vanessa and Joe and hear about their remarkable adventure in indie horror filmmaking. It's a path laden with a love of Beetlejuice cartoons, Army of Darkness, ingenuity, practical effects, and fun like no other. Here's stories about filming this thing in an actual abandoned haunted house and the challenges of not only writing and directing, but starring in and scoring it. Then get a sneak peek of their insane work in Bloody Disgusting's upcoming VHS 99, also out on Shudder on October 20th. It's over an hour with your new favorite horror creators, Vanessa and Joseph Winter, on episode 350, Now Slaying. This is Sean Ruddy. Coming to you live from Death Manor. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two absolutely thrilling filmmakers. She is a writer, director, and producer whose debut feature, Devil's Got My Back, was an official selection at the New York Television Festival. Her work includes the multi-award-winning sketch comedy Studio C. He is a writer, director, producer, composer, and actor who has crafted several acclaimed short films and was part of the team behind the Star Wars That I Used to Know parody that has garnered over 30 million views on YouTube. Together, they have made viral clips for Crypt TV, Not Scary Farm, at a time of recording are about to release their first collaborative full-length movie, and it is, in all honesty... One of the best horror films that we've ever seen. It is everything we love about the genre turned up to full volume. It is at the same time hilarious and relentlessly terrifying. It is a raucous love letter to the best of the best that is passionately inventive, unique, and just wonderful. And don't take our word for it either. We aren't blowing smoke ever since making its debut on the festival circuit. As an official selection at South by Southwest this year, where it had its world premiere, it became the festival's first ever buzz screening. It's continued to take everyone's breath away, grabbing the audience awarded everywhere from Fantasia to Motel X in Lisbon, and most recently playing at LA's famed Beyond Fest. The film is called Deadstream. 
It's about an internet personality trying to regain followers by live streaming in a haunted house. It's available exclusively on Shutter on October 6th, and the fun does not stop there. Shortly after that, on October 20th, they take control of a segment in the fifth installment of Bloody Disgusting's very own VHS 99. We are deeply honored to welcome our new favorite people, the couple behind it all, Vanessa and Joseph Winter. Yeah! Wow, well, thank you! You really, um... Wow, you really dug deep with the the references, like our career history, Star Wars that I used to know. I was like, wait, what? That? Oh, yeah! Wow! You guys are just remarkable, and, and hey, congrats on this truly exciting new chapter of your filmmaking journey. So first off, how does it feel to have the work get this kind of incredible reception and platform? Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun when you you make something and you wonder, I wonder if anybody will ever be able to sit through this. And then it turns out some people do. So, yeah, <laughs> it's it's so for me, it's like I've been not able. So, like, I keep going back and forth with like, uh, you know, someone will tell me they really like it. And I'm like, yeah, really? Like, do we make something people like? And then I go to an in-person screening. I'm just cringing the whole time and people are laughing. And I'm like, I don't know why they're laughing. I don't know why they're jumping. And then we went to this Beyond Fest screening, and I feel like that was the first time Vanessa and I had enough distance that we were able to, like, kind of enjoy it. Yeah, I know. We kind of relaxed, and it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, we got to see the movie through other people's eyes kind of for the first time, so that was fun. As you are now two of our favorite creators in the genre space, we would love to hear kind of a bit more about your adventures in filmmaking and, and what the DNA consists of that is woven into your wildly imaginative style. We'll start with Vanessa. Tell us about your first memorable experience with the horror genre. Ooh, well, I always go, but my earliest memory, I think, is the Beetlejuice cartoon. Sure. Yeah. Um, so and like I've recently been rewatching it with my daughter and I, I really never revisited it until now. And as I'm watching, it's so bonkers. Like, so I actually can't believe it where they take some of the episodes. And I just feel like a lot of stuff makes sense about who I am. Yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't watch it growing up. I love Beetlejuice, but watching it now with our daughter and Vanessa, it's like so Vanessa. I can see like where she was kind of birthed creatively because it's it's like totally something that you would do now. In terms I also of wonder, like, did I marry Beetlejuice? Like, <laughs> what's that supposed to Whoa. First of all, which version? Yeah. You say animated version. Second of all, what? What would you say about the, the creative decisions made in that show kind of sparked something in you? Is it, is it kind of the wild reaches it would take? Is it the, the, the bold risks or chances? Is there something you can pinpoint exactly? Yeah, I think there's something I'm always chasing in horror and something that like the joy that horror really brings me. And I think that's just shock and surprise. Sure. Maybe that's awe what I'm describing, but just something that just completely takes me off guard. And I think the Beetlejuice cartoon really delivers in that in that arena but i i think i we just saw barbarian i was just gonna say it's like the barbarian of and I, I feel like <laughs> i feel like i had the same smile on my face as soon as it ended just like i i would never have seen this coming and that just makes me so happy we were looking for Barbarian on the Disney cruise because it's yeah, it's a Disney a movie, movie right now, right? Like, right. Like, even, Hell, even Hellraiser is somehow a Disney film like, now, hello. right? Yeah. And, like, no. <laughs> and Joe, how about you? What were some of your first memorable horror experiences? 
Yeah, so for me, I, I had parents that um, let me watch things I probably shouldn't have watched looking back, but I'm so glad that they did because it shaped me. Um, I, from my earliest, earliest memories, always loved Halloween and um, scary stories to tell in the dark, everything like that. And my dad, he introduced me to House and House 2 when I was really little. And that's something that we would watch a bunch. And The Monster Squad, my all-time favorite movie, The Gate, was introduced to me at around like four years old. And so I just grew up having an obsession with it. I don't feel like I can't pinpoint a time where it first occurred to me. It just was always part of my life. Um, but the first time that I actually thought about horror and filmmaking as like a, a profession or something that I could be involved with, I was, I was really little and my parents rented the making of thriller from blockbuster. Yeah, and yeah. it was like, man, it just blew my mind seeing these, um, seeing like prosthetics being peeled off of the zombies faces, like after the shoot. And I was, I was like, what's that? And I started asking my parents, like, what is, how do we find out what this is that they're pulling off of their faces? And um, so then they started asking friends and like, it, that's, that really, I think was my entry point into the craft of filmmaking. And so ever since then, I've always had at least one foot in the door of like, what where i wanted to spend my time for the rest of my life joe did you pursue formal training in your path in filmmaking or what was your journey like eventually so when i was into filmmaking in high school but the college that i went to when i first graduated didn't have a film program the closest thing they had was communications. so i went down that route but was was taking film classes and still trying to make like little indie short films and then eventually I went to BYU in Provo, Utah, and that's where I met Vanessa. And I did go there decisively, like I'm going to be a filmmaker and I want to learn everything that I can. And so, yeah, I specifically went to the film program there. Yeah, we uh, we both got into the film program at the same time. Right. So we met, there's kind of like uh, an intro class that all the new people in the program take together. I met her because... Well, she was there. I saw her in the class, but I hadn't talked to her until she walked up to me one day and said, hey, do you want to be the art director on a film? I'm a production designer on it. And I just thought you'd be a good fit, which is like, come on. Like looking back was like a good fit. I, she didn't even know me. But like, I'm so honored. Wow, this is incredible. And then I found out like she had asked everybody else in the class. They all said no. Right. Um, Either she was into you or you were the last resort. <laughs> so anyway, so we started this like our entire relationship, not even romantic, just like our whole relationship was like making films together in some capacity. Yeah, I remember there was so the for this uh, student film that he's referencing was our first time working together. And I remember there was a guy on set who was watching us try to hang wallpaper. And he was like, you guys argue like a married couple. And I was like, so offended. I was like, no. Because <laughs> like, obviously I was falling for it. Oh, that's know. hilarious. That's the best. <laughs> and Vanessa, so b before you ended up in that school program, were you doing stuff independently on your own? What did your kind of path look like? Yeah, I actually, um, I didn't really, I grew up in a really small town in Wyoming and filmmaking as a career was just not on my radar. Um, but I slowly got attracted to the arts. And so at school, I, I mean, I started out as a science major and I found my way into art history. And then I 
finally took an intro to film class and it just blew my mind. And I was like, maybe this is the thing. And like, as soon as I got on the set, it's just the rest is history. It, I fell so hard for film. But yeah, I didn't I didn't grow up. I'm jealous of all the people that had little like camcorders and grew up making stuff because that was so I, I don't even have I didn't even have friends that were doing that. But the thing is, though, I didn't know that you didn't have that when I met you because I had never met someone as hardworking as you like that was like, I'm going to pull all nighters. I'm never going to sleep and I'm always <laughs> going to be on time and like doing these these like just working yourself into the ground where like other people, some people were working really hard, but you were really like taking control in film school of like what you wanted to do. So it's really impressive finding out that you had just decided to do it for the first time. I was so excited. I was also so out of money because I was like 23 and starting a new major. <laughs> and what did you find working together that dynamic was like? What, what were you bringing out in each other that made you enjoy the creative process together? Oh man, for me, like I, I felt for Joseph and also for him creatively at the same time. Like, so, so it was always so interwoven. Like I, in our very first class we took together, I had gotten to know him and was already like, I'd already fallen for him pretty hard, but he played this, <laughs> this little, we had, all had to make three minute films. Mm -hmm. They were like super short, but his was like, a zombie comedy that just like took things so far like these like huge crash zooms like crash zooms from like the other side of the room <laughs> and people were eating it up like he people were laughing and i was like damn this guy is talented <laughs> do you guys so still anyway. have the student films um, Dude, we could find that one. Like, we could find that well, one. We don't want to find that. No, <laughs> so yeah, we don't. There, there's like there's a student film that I made that I'm still when I look at it, I'm like, oh, I'm proud of that. I didn't expect to still be proud of that. But that one she's talking about, I'm not proud of that one. <laughs> with Vanessa, though, I, I was taking some classes with her. Um, like we took a screenwriting class together. Basically, like every class, if you had to start pitching ideas. There would be a portal in it. And you're like, Oh, I have this idea called sock world. Like where do all your socks go when they, when they, you know, you miss one and, and like <laughs> her idea. mind was just had no boundaries <laughs> on her creativity. And it was so, it was just so fun being around her. And I just realized that we got each other, even though we were different, she could give me feedback that I could rely on. And I, felt like I got what she was going for and I could give her good feedback. And it just, um, it wasn't smooth sailing. I mean, like when you decide you're going to collaborate really closely with someone, it's, it's a, it's a big, it's a battle, you know, like trying to make personalities work together, but it was, we just knew that that's really what we wanted to do. Yeah. This is also a, another real moment in our history, which is we had broken up and I had a script that I really needed notes on. And I was like, man, one person I really trust is Joseph. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'll just call him and ask him for some notes. Well, we won't get back together, of course. I'm curious, Is uh, are there, yeah. do you each have maybe a collection of a few key cinematic moments in things that you've seen and treasured yourselves that you can reference that have been an important part of defining your filmmaking, maybe moments that have given you a feeling you yourself find that you continually chase in your work. 
I can name a couple off the top of my head. Yeah, you go first. first. Okay. So, um, Creepshow, Father's Day, arm pops out of the grave with this like synth note. (laughs) I saw that when I was really little. That feeling, that moment has like, has, I've brought that with me my entire life. And I'm always trying to capture that feeling. And it's a very similar feeling to um, the movie, The Gate. There's a part where, um, a monster arm just shoots out from under a bed and grabs onto an ankle. And it's like, it's unexpected. It's not even about that kind of monster, but all of a sudden there's this monster arm there and there's just such fun in that moment that I can only describe as a feeling. I can't actually articulate what it is, but that's the thing I've been chasing ever since. And like a lot of times I'll come to Vanessa with what I think is a new story idea and I'll, I'll pitch it, but it's mostly I'm finding now based on her feedback, they're mostly feelings. They're like, uh, and then there's a certain kind of music that's playing in this atmosphere. And she'll say, Joseph, that's not a story. That's a feeling. And I get my feelings hurt, whatever. But like, I'm realizing that I'm a, I'm a feelings person when it comes to my connection in the film. It's like, I'm trying to bring those things into what we're doing. Oh, and you can feel it. I'm telling you, you could feel it as an audience member. It's so hardcore. And Vanessa, we'll go to you on that, though. Yeah, a lot of my defining moments happened in film school because it was the first time that I was visiting the classics with an eye to appreciate cinema. Sure, yeah, that makes and sense. So, and it was also we'd watch them in an auditorium with a group. So there was things like Alien and the thing. I love monsters. So anything with a just a really terrifying monster, I get super excited about. The other thing that always, ah, there's like a, a certain kind of atmosphere in horror movies where I feel like it's starting to question maybe the perception of reality, mm-hmm. um, like Don't Look Now or Solaris or something where just the mood just kind of like gets under your skin. Ah, yeah, I'm trying to articulate a feeling too, but I think Don't Look Now is a really good example where it's all building toward one crazy final image. And you're like, that's the least thing, like, that's the last thing I was expecting. And at the same time, it felt like I should have been expecting it somehow. So anyway. Beautifully said, seriously, that's a nail on the head. Since Halloween is on the horizon, do you guys have any Halloween traditions that you both do? Well, we're starting, we're starting to create some now that we have kids. Before, we were always flying by the seat of our pants trying to put together a short horror film festival around this time of year. And so together, we weren't able to develop a lot of traditions. But now that we have kids, this is the time of year where we're bringing out Nightmare Before Christmas and... We've always made costumes together. Oh yeah, oh, I think that's awesome. I think consistently we do that every year. And now we have some. We have some good like couples costumes. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's been, yeah, that's always nice. been there. But yeah, it's like really. Yeah, I think watching stuff with our friends. Like I think that was the horror festival too. Like the the whole point of the little local horror festival we did was to get indie filmmakers or just people who make films for fun to see their stuff on the big screen. So we'd rent out the biggest theater in Utah and just play these four minute and less horror movies. And like, I don't know. I feel so that's like we're like, trying to chase after that. Yeah. Plot, like every October it's like trying to recreate that. Um, I like, I like anthologies around, around Halloween. 
you mentioned the, the kids and everything in developing these new traditions. As far as like gateway horror films that you were starting to show your kids, so Nightmare Before Christmas is that is that one of uh, would you consider that a gateway horror film for your family? Yeah, yeah. I would well, I would say with Daria, our three year old, she's the oldest. I would say with her, she has a, a similar thing to me where. Um, I don't remember like a first time of showing her a scary thing specifically. It seems like she just has a natural gravitation toward monsters and things like when you told her about Beetlejuice for the very first time, suddenly Beetlejuice was her imaginary friend and like, she would have conversations with him. She just really loved she's la- She's latched on to sandworms too. Like, we, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have these bumper like pillows that go around the edge of a crib. I don't know if you guys have seen those, but they've all become sandworms and there's a family. There's, there's a, a family of sandworms. And the other day we, she wanted to make a sandworm out of a box. So she's just, yeah, I think. I don't know. There's always that thing that, of course, we're like forcing it on her a little bit. I but think I, I so. think there's a natural gravitation toward monsters. I think it's all her. We're just excited for yeah, her. I think sharing ourselves. If you introduce it in a respectful way, I feel like they will latch on. Yeah, to, or, or not, right? It's kind of becomes their decision. But yeah, if you surround, if you surround anybody with uh, kind of that, um, I guess inspiration, right? Like we have a lot of horror art and inspired things around the house. Some of the kids are into it, some aren't. But I think uh, they're all. You think into, they're all into, into it? it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask that. Like, is your experience that your kids are embracing it or like kind of reacting against it? Yeah, we've never like pushed it on them but it's been there and we you know we always watch the gateway horror movies and i think that they have always found that fun but they all in their own way like are how jade seven so she loves night books that's on netflix like that's that was her gateway yeah that's sam raimi production yeah Coraline and all those and hocus pocus and then you know ev who's 10 loves evil dead and the og evil dead and our 13 year old just wants to get so oh yeah she's into fetty alvarez's evil dead that's the only one she likes out of that whole franchise she wants to be scared but we we have found though is that surrounding everybody with um the art of horror filmmaking and we find that the art of horror filmmaking there's so much creativity and ingenuity and all that and to surround someone growing up who's impressionable with all those elements not necessarily inspires them to just be into horror but just find find solace and creativity right and they and they really dive into that aspect of the genre which i think is a magical part of what makes horror so incredible and i think the best genre out there is because it is so inventive right and it's it's all built in the imagination where anything really is possible i wanted to talk about the creation of deadstream now first of all i noticed that the first draft was posted on instagram august 2019 so before I get into kind of the concept of all that, has script writing been a regular part of your continued creative process? Are there many scripts you've written just as kind of an exercise of doing them and you keep those muscles flexed? And I ask that because Deadstream has zero fat on it. It is swift. It is quick-witted. It is powerful. It feels like something that has been worked on for a very long time, a muscle that is continuously in use. What can you tell us kind of about your general creative process when it comes to script writing? We don't, we don't tend to write a lot of stuff that we don't intend to make. Um, We've written one 
a spec pilot horror script together that we spent a lot of time on it, knowing that it was mostly going to be just a way to get meetings in LA. But other than that, I think that we're very motivated. I mean, we've done a lot of shorts and stuff like that, but it feels like we really get into our groove when we have that rush that this could get made or that we're going to make it. Yeah. We don't, I don't think we do like exercise kind of script writing. Um, We're not new to script writing with feature with this feature um, in that we have done a lot of shorts, like Vanessa said, but with this, we really like, we dusted off the writing books and like, just tried to refamiliarize ourselves with structure, at least the schools of thought on structure, even stuff we already had known, but like, we really brought that out and try to be like, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's make a 90 minute film, or at least try to, it was like, the first draft was like 110 pages or some some crazy thing that I'm not proud of. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, I mean, we really like, we really learned a lot in writing our first feature here. We don't have a lot of feature like spec stuff that we've even attempted. That's fascinating because I find that, as you said, you were digging out these books and kind of going back to your school mentality and the, the script writing process 101 to help you bring this to life. It seems to ignore all regular conventions when it comes to how a feature would naturally play out. It feels incredibly intuitive and authentic, even in terms of the way that Sean talks and communicates directly with the viewer. How was that built into that with that kind of that background you're talking about? Yeah, we, we, uh, we tried really hard to get that naturalism. Like we, (laughs) We, uh, we did a lot of drafts. Joseph named it Daystream, which was our rehearsals during the day. We just kept discovering how our movie was bad, basically. <laughs> and like, just it was kind of a trial and error process of just like being terrified that we were making something unwatchable and trying to make it watchable. That was my creative process. No, I think the best thing is like, if you think Deadstream is good and you enjoyed it, that is thanks to this day stream version that we made where we realized it's not good. And um, like people were laughing at jokes on the page. We have a writer's group and we test all of our stuff with them. Um, but it just really, it really wasn't what it is now, uh, which we realized in rehearsal, it can't just be a guy monologuing and kind of like aimlessly going from one thing to another. Like we really have to know what Sean's doing in every moment, like what's his specific objective and everything he says has to be super precise or we're going to lose people. So um, I feel like, yeah, we just learned a lot from basically having a rough draft of filming it and then going back to the rewrites. And that's where it got lean. If you can even call it that, like for us, when we watch it, it's like, Oh, we still cringe and think, I wish we could have cut that or whatever. But, um, but that's, I feel like that's where we learned to be lean and to get a version of it that just stays focused. That first draft, how long did it take to write that to get to that point? Um, we've been messing around. Like we've been kind of riffing off of this idea for a few years, but we didn't get serious about the script. It probably took us four months to yeah, get out a working, right. a working first draft and then couple, couple more months. Yeah. But this isn't, it wasn't like four months of that's all we did kind of thing. Like it was always on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about right for that first draft. 
You guys get bonus points because you have two kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right to do that with two young kids. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say there was like, I benefited from some kind of madness of having my first baby where like things just felt super urgent and I would get up at like 3 a.m. and just crank on the script. Wow. Literally at 3 a.m. Yeah, there was, yeah, some hormone imbalance that was... <laughs> So when you guys were writing the script, how was that kind of delineated as far as the collaborative process? Would you kind of take, would Vanessa, you take it off in one direction and spend time with it individually and then show Joe and he would chime in or how would that work? We kind of did a, we did kind of did a rough outline um, and then divided up the scenes. And so we kind of take a stab at different scenes and then we'd switch yeah, it's just uh, our process, even in the editing room and writing is just kind of doing each other's stuff over and yeah. over again. And there's something about it that I think um, actually helps with productivity, because if you're like, hey, kick me over the scene in 40 minutes or something, <laughs> even if it's bad, you're kicking something over. And st- at least for me, there's uh, there's some procrastination and perfectionism that I feel like working with Joseph kind of it almost like it almost gets rid of it just because I I'm delivering something to somebody else. Yeah. That accountability is really important. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) It's like, for me, I don't, I'm not a great finisher without Vanessa as part of it. Like I get, um, I don't outline first of all, because the way I like to work is just to like, not be so decisive, just write things that are funny and like, hope they kind of link together, but we can't do that as partners. We have to go through the outlining process and make some hard decisions early on. It's like really painful for me. Cause I, I like to come up with scenes where there's dialogue, but it's not really tied into any plot and it's really funny. And then we'll have to decide, okay, once we choose a plot, once he goes in this room, there's no longer this funny bit over here. And that's a part that's really hard for me, but um, it, it's necessary when we're working together to decide that ahead of time, like what's the story going to be. And one of the things that propelled us with this script is that I randomly one night was like, I'm sick of telling people we have this script we're going to write, but not currently writing. So I sat down and I wrote like 10 pages or something of it. And it, all it was, was Sean at the computer in the house, interacting with fans It didn't progress the story in any way, but it was like these 10 pages of, of dialogue and comments that were popping up. And um, it kind of like Sean's voice came from that. Yeah. They were so funny. I just think that that the interactions with the internet was so fun that I, I started to wrap my mind around the character yeah. And I, I got so attached to them that like they eventually had to get cut. But like I kept trying to write them in. Like I kept trying to make the original 10 pages fit. into Which the was funny. I was like at peace with cutting them a long time ago and they appearing like in drafts <laughs> that she would turn over to me like those parts again. But we just couldn't. I mean, we hung on to probably one one joke or something from yeah. that. But so what was the initial th- seed of the whole concept? Yeah, it was a little bit different for both of us. I think we were both trying to find a movie that people couldn't stop us from making. We tend to be really high concept in our ideas. And so trying to scale down is is hard. And as you can see, we scaled down, but then 
got kind of out of control scaled it right, back, scaled up. It right <laughs> back up yeah we because it was like at first it was like okay but what do we not have to we don't have to find an investor for like what can we just go do just the two of us we know how to film i can act a little bit like let's do something and so the idea came like what if it's a guy in a haunted house and he has one camera pointed at his face and there's off camera ghost sounds that he's responding to and it's just funny it's it's funny and it's like it's just a guy being bored one night in a haunted house. And Vanessa was like, I don't like that. It's not a good idea. But then we just started talking about it one night and then there was an exploding head. And then there was like this tonal shift that was completely something different. Yeah. Then- it's like once there was this challenge of getting it to like a found footage movie that started more grounded, but then kind of went bonkers in like a eighties evil dead way. I I couldn't stop thinking about that challenge. Like, could we make that work? Like, could we go that crazy with found footage? And that's that's kind of like where I remember getting in. Also, when we named it, I, yeah. when we named it Deadstream, I'm like, that's so ridiculous. Like, I'm going to let's make it. Yeah, we, we just got so st- I remember telling Vanessa, I can't go any further with this project until we have a name that ignites me because this has to have so we were like what about the house that whatever like and then vanessa pitched the the riff off of live stream and then it became dead stream and i was like that's it that's so perfect trying to make the boo crew will be right back this is the sound of a head hitting the floor but this sound is different because this head is no longer connected to a body Vincent Price saw to that. Vincent Price has long been a master of mayhem, but in Theater of Blood, he outdoes himself at doing people in. Theater of Blood, from United Artists, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. process of actually funding the thing and setting out and getting this made so uh, i notice in the credits almost every producer is either in the movie or has the same last name (laughs) which tells me me something so was this completely self-funded with yourself and your friends basically almost almost like we had a we had a couple of small investors but they're friends, though. Like, they're not they, friends they of ours. Friends. They're yeah. friends of our producing partner. That's true. They're friends of it. Yeah, it's basically friends and family. And these are, like, small amounts of investment that we're talking about, like, really small. So, like, we we did, we decided we'd go all in with it. We opened up a bunch of 0% APR credit cards. We're like, okay, we have 12 months without being charged interest. We'll sort this then. Hopefully it works out. And so we like, paid for the cruise. <laughs> So we went like we went all in that way, but we didn't expect other people to. But then Jared Cook, who ended up producing it and being the DP, he um, he was like, "Okay, I talked to my wife Amanda, and uh, we would like to put a chunk of money in." And it was like, it was like, it was significant, like for what we were expecting, which was nothing. Are you and, sure? I wish I sure? wish Jared was here. You guys would love you guys would love him. He's such a genius. He's our D. He's a DP producer. He also did post supervising and invented like the livid apps and the interactions. Um, it's just a, the movie has a ton of him. He's, he's a, and yes, a lot of his family members donated. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. So this guy who doesn't even like horror, he liked our script. He loved the script, but he admitted like, I don't do scary things. Neither does my family. 
But then he came back to us and said, okay, my family members who hate horror, they want to donate some money too. And so like, so a lot of people came together with micro investments, I call them. And we're just like, let's just do it. Let's just start. Let's just start it. And no one can stop us. And then at some point we had to raise some more money. And if for filmmakers that are listening that want to make a feature, um, it benefited us a lot that we were posting pictures of the practical effects along the way. Um, we learned a long time ago and we were making shorts. We were so precious about spoilers. Like we didn't want to show the hero effects. And that was so stupid. It's so stupid because we're nobody, nobody cares unless you show them something that's cool. So we were posting spoilers all over Instagram that were like exploding head stuff and things of Mildred that you actually shouldn't know probably when you watch the movie, but it was so exciting to people that when the time came that we needed to raise a little bit more money um we reached out to an investor that we knew and he had been following it and tracking it and there was this excitement about like oh you're already making something that's really cool and that helped us like get the last bit that we needed yeah it's kind of anti it's kind of anti-intuitive but a lot of filmmakers low budget filmmakers i've talked to have said the same thing that once you get started it's easier to raise money and so i think that I mean, it's not mentally comfortable to approach a movie like that, but it seems to be effective. There are so many fun aspects to this film, one of them being the reading of the live uh, stream comments and watching the live video clips as you interact with them, which technically seem very challenging to make. How, uh, how are these, were these always in the original script or were these ideas that you worked on with your DP, Jared, uh, during production? Um, they were a big part of the script. But I think uh, bringing them to life in a way that felt intuitive and a way that an audience could get behind really came down to Jared's input. Um, he wanted he had tons of questions about how this would actually work. And because Jared, um, Jared's kind of like a Swiss army man of filmmaking. I think he really got into the head of this character and being like, oh, if I was going to set up a live stream and interact with characters um, while I was doing all of this other stuff, how would I do it? And so, um, I don't know. That's an aspect of the film that I feel like because of his input works really well. Like it, even though we're taking creative liberties, it feels, it feels intuitive. Well, like what he did specifically. So we, we had written, I call them hero comments, but they're the, the upvoted ones that you're intended to read. Like you draws your eye to it and they're floating at the top. A lot of those were in the script, but then when we put them in the movie, there were so many gaps and Jared made a spreadsheet and started writing comments on his bathroom breaks. Oh, wow. <laughs> he wrote over a thousand comments of like just filling that up. And he got so caught up in it that he started putting things like, if you follow it, there's a Romeo and Juliet love story that happens. Like two people meet in the comments and throughout the film, by the end, they're engaged. And this oh my like, god, oh, I've seen yeah, this three we times like, and I haven't you... noticed that yet. I gotta watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Where, what are you doing, Jared? Like, why are you so into this? It doesn't matter that much, but he took it so seriously that I actually think that it brought a lot to the movie because if your eye is picking some of these up, some of them are so funny. So, we got the comments going on, that's one aspect of the movie, but also to anyone who's who's brand new to this, which is most people listening to this right now, so. There is this element used in the narrative, strategically mounted live stream cams and GoPros that Sean kind of puts all over this haunted house, and they're triggered by motion detection technology. And 
God, does that ever allow for an incredible tension wire, the likes of which we have not experienced before, where the audience is experiencing the camera switching in real time without the knowledge of the main character. And it's an insanely scary effect. And our imaginations are ignited because we're exploring these frames that are thrown at us, looking for things. Our minds are filling them with things that may or may not be there while while the movie is playing. Talk about conceiving that this amazing element. <laughs> I think that. Did you have something to say? No, you go first. Okay. Um, I was so that original idea that I told you that wasn't a good idea of just one camera on my face. Yeah. Um, when Vanessa was trying to find her way into that, because I was like, oh, maybe there is something there. One of the things that helped was pulling it out of that and starting to feel like, okay, how can we justify other cameras? And so we really quickly were like, okay, well, it's got to be something where this guy is tech savvy and puts these cameras in different places so that we can justify a more cinematic experience. So that happened pretty early on. And then I think Vanessa, Vanessa is like the brains behind using some of them to their maximum scary potential. Vanessa, when I started drifting toward, I was like, I blew right past Evil Dead 2, was headed toward Army of Darkness tonally. And like <laughs> what I wanted for it, and I felt like that's what this script wants to be. And she was like, okay, but we got to keep it scary. And so I feel like Vanessa used those cameras and those opportunities to start building tension. And she was like hyper aware when we weren't doing it, like when it was just too funny and we needed to pull back some jokes. I think that for me, there's always been this this scary element about technology being able to pick up the paranormal that you can't. So there's this idea of, you know, that like, well, A, the audience is seeing stuff that he's not seeing. But I also think it's just the idea of EVPs or like, I mean, I don't think it makes sense. But the idea that <laughs> you can see something on an iPad that you can't see with your eyes, like stuff like that is just so scary to me personally so i think i just kept trying to write it in did anything creepy happen on the set that wasn't uh, planned not like <laughs> i always joke that we're not very paranormally sensitive but to other people yes yeah so this uh, this house is notoriously haunted in utah um where like teenagers break into it every night because of that and on the set, we had heard tons of stories about the house, but on set, people who didn't know that aspect of it were complaining about like weird feelings. And there were a couple of crew members who asked us if it was OK if they didn't go into a certain room without a companion. Um, and they were serious, like they weren't like it. They were so um they were so worked up about an energy that they were feeling. And there was uh, one of the crew members heard a woman singing and there wasn't one. And uh, Jared, who had to go there multiple times, like actually a lot in the yeah, middle of the poor night, Jared. He, he would drive out there because he had the, um, the security system on his phone. And so he would hear when somebody broke in. So he drove out there alone in the middle of the night many times. And he he had things happen to him that he was so convinced was paranormal and that he really like he got to the point where he hated being in the house like it was uh it ended up it ended up having like a big presence on our film like throughout production um this like this energy that people couldn't really just dis describe yeah yeah i think that also the like the lore behind it there i mean if you actually look it up 
it turns out that the there was an old pump house that was close to the house along an irrigation ditch where two brothers died and that actual pump house is gone so the lore kind of got transferred to the old pioneer house that we we're filming in um so that's kind of like where the lore got started but it's it's such a local legend that we had uh, we had a contractor come work on the house and I mean, he's the kind of guy that looks like he could beat up 10 other guys, <laughs> but he was like reliving something that happened to him as a teenager where he saw a woman in a window and like, he was spooked about it. Like being in the house, like 20 years yeah, later, so, 15 yeah, he, years later, I don't know how old he broken was. into that house as a teenager and saw a woman. It's the bathroom in uh, where the bathtub scene happens in Deadstream, it's not an actual bathroom but he said in that window he saw a woman standing there and like when he's talking to you you can tell that he believes that like he at least in his mind saw that happen yeah was the tub original to that house no okay it looks like it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the production design is next level leo you had a question about the house while we're still on it yeah, i was thinking about that location death manor with the, the floating dust that's picked up on the cameras and insects it all comes across as a you know like an occupational hazard uh, was that is that, is that the way it was found you guys used it as is or was this all like visual effects things or um was was each room set dressed I mean, as far as the dust and bugs, it was super dirty and smelly. That that part was real. That the house had been completely stripped. So the production designer, the well, I should say the art team altogether, they did a ton. They really like up the atmosphere. Um, a lot of the wall, the wallpaper and tagging, it kind of had this really natural, colorful for a haunted house character to it when we found it and so we really embraced that we felt like it fit the mood of the script and then um the production designer amy smith and the art art director meg cabell they really went with that so on the second floor we had to add some walls they created those out of fabric and stuff but they really matched the colors and textures and so I don't know. I love that house yeah so about specifically about the condition it was in like the upper floor there were no walls. It was just all this open space and the ceiling was missing and a big part of it. And we like our hearts broke when we walked into it because we realized this isn't filmable. Um, and it wasn't until later that we were like, okay, but th- we have to film here somehow. And then we got the idea of like actually coming in and reinforcing it so that it wasn't dangerous. And it was honestly in no condition to film in. And so what you see now is actually a cleaned up version of that house. Like it had so much junk that had accumulated over the decades because like it, it didn't it didn't have furniture in it but it had like big piles of adobe and just like sticks and debris and stuff like that it had like old out. mattresses and stuff for some reason like junky kind of yeah. stuff that was left behind but yeah the, the version here is like a cleaned up version for sure so every no no exterior sets used everything that we see in the house is in the house yeah. And it also looks like this was a really cool aspect of it. We wanted a house in the forest, but we thought that wasn't going to happen. We're not going to find the perfect house that's also in the woods. But the back of it had these really huge trees, like a cluster of them. And it was just enough that we could fake that it was in the forest. So we would film that direction at the beginning through the trees to the house. And then everything the other direction was in a forested area a few miles away. 
I'm so curious about when the action moves to the car and a lot of stuff happens within the confines of this small car. Did you have to build some sort of weird version of the car, like some sort of set where you can maneuver in it? Were you actually just in a car with the cameras? We just did a car. Whoa. It was Jared's car. Jared. <laughs> it's no funny because there's like that duct tape bag that happens throughout the movie. But that car that he had was actually the bumper is held together by duct tape. Like it was already oh, funny. in that condition, which is so that's perfect so for it. But yeah, that was that was real. That was just a car. And we, we like we wanted to break the windshield so bad. We had a part in our script that we felt like we couldn't write out. And then um, we just eventually gave up and wrote it out. Yeah. Just because now, we, were, we were out of time and money. But yeah, I think in our minds, we were going to do some kind of set piece or like make it more than just a car. But then it was just a car. How are the uh, directing duties split between you two since Sean spends most of his time on camera? On set, it was pretty split because Joseph had obviously all the cameras strapped to his body. So I was behind the monitors doing a lot of the technical directing. Um, we tried to make as many creative decisions beforehand. So it really was, it really was a true co-directing collaboration in that sense. Also to try to cut down on as much embarrassing married couple arguing as possible. <laughs> yeah, we to get that out of the way during right. days. Yeah. <laughs> so is what we're seeing, what we're getting all those, the GoPro footage and all the strapped on cameras. Is that true to what we're seeing or is there some sort of magic behind the curtain there? Sometimes yeah. there's magic, but like for the most part, it was, I was operating at the same time. So this was the biggest challenge for me personally. And I was not anticipating it is operating the camera while I was acting. And there are times that it just wasn't working because like you can't act scared when it's pointed at my face and I have to move a certain way. And then at the same time, cut to a POV that actually works. That isn't just completely garbage. And so we'd have to split those up and shoot them as separate elements. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were specialty shots where it wasn't possible to keep a GoPro strapped to my head while I'm like flailing around on the floor or like fighting Mildred or something where Jared. Some of the, some of the fight sequences, the cameras operated by Jared holding Joseph's head, and <laughs> like moving it to the stunt performers. So yeah. there was like some of that, but Joseph's, I mean, Joseph's job was, was very technical. Um, the field of view with the cameras was so small that like all of his head movements had to be so choreographed, even him looking at the camera or holding up an iPad. It like, that was its own, that's own like its own performance. Like it was just a huge, there was a huge learning curve, a with, huge uh, weight on your shoulders. Oh, <laughs> I was like, you're going to say learning curve. It's <laughs> like, I was not, I was in over my head for real. And it was like, it was it's so, hard. it was so depressing to finally find the reality of like your onset and it's ready to shoot this movie in rehearsal. It didn't matter if the framing was bad. We were just trying to feel out the pace, but like onset, it had where it had to, had to look good. It had to actually count. Um, man, that was just so much. Like, I felt like I can't I actually felt like I can't do this. I don't know how I'm going to get through acting and being cognizant to these movements because it's like a different part of my brain. Yeah. Like and make it look natural. Right. Yeah, it's like I'm Sean reacting to something, but then there's the other part of my brain that's like I'm a DP framing things up. And that was just really hard to get those parts of my brain to communicate together. But eventually, like everybody got better, like as we went along, including that part of the film. So 
Yeah. Poor, <laughs> poor Joey in the B-roll, like the, the stuff that's playing after I say cut, you can hear like poor Joseph's like trying to get into the performance and you can hear my voice being like, okay, that was good. But like, can you move your head like a quarter inch to the left? Oh my gosh. That I mean, precise, huh? Totally that is incredible. It had, it had to be, we found wow. the movie wouldn't be watchable if it wasn't precise. And in some parts of the movie that we just couldn't do again, um, which by the way, we had to, we had to pop in over the course of a few months, like on the weekends and pick some of this up um, because of that technical aspect but like you can see parts of the movie where we just couldn't pick it up like we couldn't actually get it right where it's not quite right and you feel that because it's a movie it's like it didn't have the forgiveness that an actual live stream would like you needed to see kind of what you were directed at seeing what about in terms of like directing uh doing those shots pov with practical effects and managing to carry those out that are also maybe you've got one shot at pulling that off and you got these cameras strapped to your head and it's going to look exactly right when that head's exploding in front of you or whatever. What about the challenge of that? Yeah. I mean, again, there's other versions of this movie that like take place in like our bathtub where like I'm underneath a shower curtain pretending to be a creature. <laughs> so a lot of it was we, and we needed to get on the same page with our DP because one of the things that I I think makes the the movie unique is that there's actually two cameras strapped to Joseph's head side by side um, for the POV camera. And one of them is a wide angle GoPro. And the other one is a tighter angle. It's the has, a, has a little bit of gimbal on it. So it's, it's a really great camera, but it's a little bit more touchy. Like it, you have to reset it after every take and it's field of view is a lot more narrow, but it picks up more detail. So Anyway, we're always kind of fighting with that, like really trying to get the creature in the middle of frame, because if it could look good on the Osmo, it would pick up more detail and be a little bit creepier. But then the nice thing was we had the GoPro as a backup, like that has a little bit of a wider, wider lens. So, so there was, I, and this was like, Jer this is also kudos to Jared because he fought for the two cameras where we were like, let's just pick one and stick to it. And he's like, I don't know, man, guys, like, I just think if we had the option and they end up cutting together in a way that like, I don't think anybody's ever noticed that we're switching, switching cameras. And so, um, but, I, but yeah, we, pra we practiced a lot, I think is like how the answer to your question. Yeah. I want to give props to Jared though, because for some of these specialty shots, if there was an effect and there wasn't a reason I had to have the camera on my head, Jared would usually operate those. And he, he has like really steady hands. He's really good at that kind of thing. Really great eye for it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the shots where that wasn't an option miraculously they worked somehow they didn't always work on the first take but we just somehow were able to get it like um things that when i watch it now i'm I, I don't know how we got that you know with the resources that we had like i'm i'm still like i don't remember shooting that right you know and it, it's working somehow this film has some of the best practical effects we've seen since evil dead 2 and peter jackson's early films how involved into that process do you guys get as far as the design work and, and all that or do you hand it off to to someone on your team we like uh, we like monsters that have personality to them um so that's something that we really wanted um but troy larson the creature designer we um we had met him earlier in fact joseph's the one who actually found him do you want to tell that story yeah the, uh, so it was like several years ago i wanted to make a short that had a, a rat with a human head 
And we were looking for someone. We didn't have very much money. We we're looking for someone that could do it locally. And someone referred me to this guy, Troy. And at the time, he was making um, Star Wars replicas out of his garage and selling them on eBay. And they were the best you would ever see. Like he had this Admiral Akbar that looks just phenomenal <laughs> and a, a life-size Yoda. And um, it was it was so great. So he did this creature thing for us for practically nothing. And it was like an amazing puppet that actually has appeared in all of our films since. And don't and, you feel like there was like a personality meshing oh, where totally. we love the same films and just his design seemed to like mesh with our, our dark humor, totally. I guess. And so, so basically I'll let you finish the story about Troy, but in answer to your question, um, Troy, they really are Troy's designs. Like it's his, it's him bringing that personality and they're very cohesive. They're so fun. I love that. It looks like it was made by the same person, like the same, it's like in the same universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Paint, um, like color scheme and technique that it just kind of like binds it together, which is really fortunate for our film. Um, and like, so we would talk about movies like, house or creep show or things where the creatures were really, really uh, personality driven uh, more so than just like real. And he took that and ran with it because that's the same kind of thing he was into. In fact, he's the one that pitched to us um, the stretching figure finger gag, or we had like a finger up the nose, but he, it was his idea to make something that could stretch. Um, so anyway, he's just like his, Whatever is going on in his brain and his wheelhouse just meshed really well with the movie and he brought a ton of ideas to it. So the props in this movie are insane. Mildred's diary. Can we talk or the general? Can we talk about making that and how we can get it? <laughs> just throwing it out there. Or where is it now? That journal is, is seriously, yeah. it's, a, it's a work of art. And uh, we see more of it throughout the film. And it's it, the stuff that went into it. It looks like a lot, a lot of work. Yeah, we love it. It's it's so pretty. It's actually a journal from like early 1900s France. No way. And I think you would find it super interesting because it was like a journal, but also like a little school book, like whoever's it was, like there's <clears throat> math problems written on it. Oh my gosh. And so it's also like experimenting with their cursive and like, it's just a really cool little book. And then we have one of my best friends is kind of like, I don't even know what you would call this talent. She's a, she's a costume designer, but she's also for our wedding invitation. She like, handmade like a little font for us oh, like a calligrapher has, or something like, yeah. Uh, yeah calligrapher a typographer or something and so she made the insert pages um and, and aged aged them, them made and them kind match. of like made it cohesive and so so we had a little section inside the book that were the blank pages that she added to it. her name's emily jacobson by the way and um but it's it's interesting because in the movie this wasn't on purpose, but I would have to get to just the right page when I open it up. And there are multiple times when I'm opening to just math equations. <laughs> if you're paying attention, it's like just clearly French and a bunch of algebra for some reason. And then it's like, oh, Mildred's poems. And it's just one of one. They just you just did one. It was a one off item, right? Yeah. I don't recommend that. But yeah. And it was it was like really stressful because I had blood on my hands through a lot of the continuity and, like right? open it and handle the pages and then like oh there's blood on it now hopefully people don't notice so it was a issue with that but man emily did such a good job with aging those pages and she did the occult book insert yes that 
that falls out of the book. Yeah, um, no, I, I did that actually. Oh yeah, you're amazing. I'm so good. Oh, okay, okay. I, I didn't. I remember how she nice. um, had it like on a tray in the oven. She made a bunch of them and like poured Dr. Pepper in the tray. It was trying to age. It's a great job. Yeah, Vanessa. thanks. Thanks. It's I'm, not it's not on the same level as the journal, but thank you. I will take credit for that one page. That's incredible. Um, as for as for uh, you guys wanting to have it in your possession, it's yours, man. Oh, what are you talking about? Oh, okay. it to you. Yeah. So this is uh, we didn't have time because we just got back from the um, the promotion of VHS 99 and Deadstream, like a, a festival run. And we were like, we should just because you had mentioned to us on Instagram that you really like that prop. And we were thinking, like, we should just send it to him in a box and tell them not to open it until <laughs> like the podcast or whatever. We did not have time for that. But just oh, know, know that that was on our minds. We were going uh-huh. to do it. Are you serious? Caveat, totally serious. Caveat being, if there's ever a dead stream too, for any reason, and you it has may, to come you back. You may have to, you may have to nail it to <laughs> yourself. Dude, if you guys are serious, I mean, yeah, that's the most, uh, wow. Guys. We're like. Speechless. Speechless. And you don't don't feel like you have to send it to it. Seriously. We want to. We wow. want to. We have everything from the movie. And if they're like, we don't have anything to do with it right now, but that would be, we'd love to. We'd love to send it to you. Oh my God, you guys. We oh. would be honored and we would display it in our house. And if you ever wanted it back. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. a wow. Speechless, speechless there. But wow. <laughs> I, I want to mention too, I know, I know we're probably running out of time, but I got to give shout outs to the wardrobe designer, whoever you had doing the, is it Anna Hayes who, who did the wardrobe yeah. for this thing? Yeah, Unbelievable yeah. job. Everything is iconic from Sean and his, uh, his tidy whities to uh, Chrissy's denim get up. All the ghost costumes are incredible. What was that collaboration like? Oh man, Anna was just one of, she's uh, one of the few people that we hadn't worked with before um, when we started the film. And she was just such a wonderful gift. She was so creative and awesome. Um, How do you even describe how awesome Anna is? She's a, she was just like the kind of person that um, would come to the table with lots of ideas, like read the script and say, here's what I think this person would wear or whatever. And it took a long time to figure out what Sean is wearing. Like, what's he going to wear during the broadcast? That's obnoxious, but isn't like (laughs) super generic. And so, um, and this was like a, we decided what about the 100 emoji and then the collaboration with her was like trying to get the right color and like if it's a sweatshirt versus whatever and we really worked closely with her on it it was just such a great experience and the movie is Mm -hmm. so much better because we chose her i think she really helped with mildred's personality too because of course like for me i was like looking at these old just like black gothic dresses on etsy and like i like that she brought in something a little bit more like pioneer with like the brown and it's more tangible and like um yeah just things like that and just like also yeah well i don't want to spoil anything i love it and we got to talk about melanie stone who is spectacular how and where did you find her Oh, Melanie has been our friend for a while that we've worked, uh, collaborated with on other projects. And she's a writer and producer also. And she like, we wrote it for her 
And as soon as she was on board to do it, I felt like a lot of the personality of the film became cohesive for me because she's so funny, but she's also so terrifying and having a villain that kind of was like helping the film with its transition stylistically um, really helped me. So yeah, she's just, she's also in our VHS 99 segment. Yes. She's so great in that. She slays. Is that her voice, her her actual voice? Did she have to put on that voice? She sent us for the VHS segment. um, She plays Mabel. Um, She would send us voice memos of her voice, like options, basically. It's like, what do you think about this accent? What do you think about this? Is it too smokery voice? Is it whatever? And like, it was awesome. It was awesome just like having this collaboration with her. She's like, oh, here's some more options. And we were able to fine tune what does Mabel sound like? And I don't think we would have got that. We didn't have the time or resources to get that like with anybody else. Like it was, it was just so, I'm so glad that we're friends with her. We put her in everything we've made probably over the last several years. And we probably Mm -hmm. will continue doing that forever. Yeah. Until she gets sick of us. (laughs) In in Deadstream, it was a very, another thing to give her props for um, is it's a very physical performance and going all practical with the effects and the kind of prosthetic she had to wear um that on it on its own is like another art form and yeah she she did, she did, she awesome. did great but it was not comfortable for her we're actually getting the rap signal right now but before we go i, I want to give leo one more shot uh one more question in leo jump is there a uh, sequence that didn't make the final cut that we'll see in the director's cut or blu-ray extras perhaps or a scene that you both really wanted to film but couldn't due to time or budget? Well, uh, to the end question, there's a lot of scenes that we didn't have time or budget for. But one scene that we did film, and it's actually a better movie without it, but I think it's a fun standalone scene, is um, Sean crawling on the ground calling 911 and having this banter with the 911 operator. And it was a... <laughs> Joseph was all... I mean, he worked hard for it. He crawled through the like the area around the house has like broken pieces of glass and old nails like it was impossible to clean up. So he was crawling through all of this crap, gave this really, I thought, hilarious performance. And that that got cut. But But I would be happy to send it to you guys. Oh, Oh my gosh. It's interesting because on its own, it was like people would watch it. We'd say, hey, what do you think of this? And we'd send it to someone. People thought it was hilarious and like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. But it's crickets. Like when we watched it with people, like test audiences, people were falling asleep during this part of the movie. It just drags the movie where it should be dragging. And so we didn't think we could cut anything really from this because it's a live stream real time, but we were able to cut the entire scene and it's like it was never supposed to be there in the first place. All right. So I know, I I know we've been given the rap signal, but I I cannot leave you guys without at least, and we got like 20 questions left, so we'll have to do part two later (laughs) on, but we can't let you go without the music. The music is exceptional. It's some of the best scores we've heard since uh, Disaster piece did uh, it follows soundtrack and the way that you guys and the way that you guys incorporated you know with the cassette recorder I've never ever seen in a movie where other characters get a chance to manipulate the score real time live with the film it's it's ingenious but just briefly your history in scoring is this the first time you've done anything like this and how did you approach it this is this is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me thank you <laughs> i love so this with this this is like a bucket list item for me i've been into music my whole life but never it was never like 
I mean, never within the last 15 years, it hasn't been the like my career choice. And so in the back of my mind was always this, like, I wish I could score a horror movie because that's my favorite type of music. And um, with this came the opportunity to just write something because if it wasn't good, that was Sean's fault because he's supposed to be the composer. In the world. So like, for real, it was perfect for me to get this like out of my system. Like I'm going to just pour my heart out into a three week process of just writing these songs and we'll find the right, like silly tunes to go in this. And if it's not good, it is his fault, not mine. And that chapter is now closed. And I feel like I can die happy now. Oh, yeah, you no, can't Joe, stop Joseph doing it. Slade, we also had like our accident baby around the same time. Like a literal so when, he, baby. when he says he did it in three weeks, he did it in like a couple hours each day over three weeks. Like he did it so fast. Oh, it's so and, impressive. And it's so it's so great. It like you, you get attached to the temp, like the temp score in your edit. But like I when he started doing his music, because it was a little bit scary for me because I'm like, you've never scored anything. But okay. But when I heard it, I was like, dude, this is killer. It deserves one of those like waxwork, like special vinyl releases, the whole thing. That's the dream, man. That is the dream. (laughs) It's going to happen, man. Carpenter's Halloween. John Carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys, we're going to get into trouble if we don't let you go. But thank you so much for the gift of your creativity and your energy. It is exactly why this genre shines above and beyond all. And we cannot wait to go on many more journeys with you guys thank you for making this stuff thank you so much we wanted to be on your podcast for years and so thank you for helping for making it happen oh my god thanks for having us guys god are you kidding me congrats on everything we'll be in touch thank you that was the boo crew podcast episode 350 special thanks to our guests and brand new bffs vanessa and joseph winter at time of release don't miss dead stream exclusively on shutter october 6th and then as part of bloody disgusting's new anthology film VHS 99 on Shutter October 20th. Production tracks for this one provided by the good folks at Power Man 5000. Till next time, this is Trevor and for myself, Lauren and Leo, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.